Well, our uh, meandering journey on discipleship has brought us to Acts chapter 2. And as I said last week, being what Acts chapter 2 is, just an awesome presentation of the gospel, being who I am. <laughs> um, we've just been sort of working through Acts chapter 2, and there is a purpose in it when it comes to discipleship. And I hope at the end that uh, when we start to see that purpose and to see that, how it applies, that all that's gone before will just clinch things. Um, and sort of that's sort of my intent in all of it. Acts chapter 2, we looked at the event of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the day of Pentecost. Peter stands up. People were trying to understand how to interpret it. Some were mocking, others were questioning, and Peter stands up and says, well, this is a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. And so we looked at Joel 2, speaking of the last days, and that Joel talked about a time in history when God would pour out a spirit on all flesh, not just the Jews, but all flesh. Um, and those would be called the last days. And in those last days, people would call upon the name of the Lord, and whoever calls upon the name of the Lord in those days will be saved. And those days terminate with a last day. The last days are terminated by a last day. And as we saw when Jesus explained that last day when he returns, it will bring a new heavens and a new earth, that final era of redemption. After Peter speaks of that to the crowd, that what's happening is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in a very real way. Then he brings an indictment against the crowd that's before him, the crowd that had crucified Jesus. Sure, their hands didn't pound the nails in, but they used every illegitimate means they could to make that happen. And so Peter plainly reminds them that God had approved Jesus. Jesus was in their midst. They knew that he was a man approved of God and performed miracles that only, only God could accomplish. And yet they nailed him to a cross. Peter then speaks of the resurrection. And as he speaks of the resurrection, he appeals to Psalm 2. And so we spent a few sessions on Psalm 2, looking at, uh, sorry, 16. <laughs> Uh, psalm 16, it's just such an awesome psalm. There's Jesus speaking in the purest form of the Spirit of Christ in Old Testament prophecy. And Peter's affirmation is that God raised up Jesus from the dead, raised him up again. You all killed him, but God raised him up. That's the message. And then he says, for David says concerning him, and he starts to quote the psalm. He's going to show that the resurrection is rooted in Old Testament prophecy. It's not just something that happened. It's not something God figured out at the end of the matter. Oh, golly, they killed my son. Maybe I should raise him from the dead. The sufferings of the Christ were throughout all of the prophetic era. And that's what it was about. Sufferings of Christ and the glories that should follow as Peter frames it. Peter quotes from Psalm 16, beginning at verse 8. I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. So David is writing this Psalm 16, about 1000 BC, and David is saying concerning the resurrection of Jesus a thousand years later. 
I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I would not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced and my flesh also shall dwell in hope. Because Jesus, the Messiah, said God is at the center of my life, my being, my existence. God is at my right hand. I won't be shaken and my heart will remain full of joy. And my flesh is going to dwell in hope. And so this is the part of that psalm that really speaks to the resurrection. The Messiah in other psalms talks about himself being killed, but here he talks about his resurrection. My flesh will dwell in hope. Trust in the eternal God, a trust that looks beyond the grave. Something appropriate for the things we're focused on this morning and praying about this morning. The hope of the gospel is not that God will fix things in my life. The hope of the gospel is God will give us eternal life beyond the grave. That's the great hope. And the Messiah, speaking through David, 1000 BC, for you will not abandon my soul to the grave. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. My body's not going to decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Beyond that grave, beyond that body that dies but yet doesn't see corruption, I'm going to find life and I'm going to be full of gladness because I'm going to be with God forever. So here's that final specific language of a permanent, eternal life in fellowship with God. And that's what the psalm's about. And so Peter brings that psalm to bear. He's going to explain it in a minute. But before he can explain how Psalm, rather, keep saying Psalm 2, Psalm 16, how Psalm 16 applies, he has to go through 2 Samuel 7. And that's where we're going to be beginning today. And in order to understand 2 Samuel 7, you kind of have to know the rest of the material of Peter's preaching. Not the rest of the chapter, but the rest of Peter's preaching. So as we work through 2 Samuel 7, how Peter makes use of it, we'll be sort of going up and down in the rest of the passage that, uh, of Acts chapter 2 uh, through verse 36. And so why don't we pray again and ask the Lord to be with us specifically in it. Well, Father, we're coming to your throne and Lord, here's Peter declaring your resurrection some 2,000 years ago. Lord, are you speaking to a crowd who had seen Jesus, had seen the miracles. Many in our day will say, well, if, unless you can prove to me Jesus existed, then well, I'm not going to believe it. That wasn't their problem back then. They had seen Jesus. They knew the things about him was true. They knew he had worked miracles. They knew he had done things no one else could do. Only God could ultimately accomplish. Many today will say, unless I see miracles, you know, I'm not going to believe in God or I'm not going to believe in the gospel. And Lord, those people back then saw believing in the gospels more than just being convinced that God exists, that you exist. And Lord, just pray this morning that as we look at these words, you would give us your Holy Spirit. You would bear witness to the truth and reality of things that transpired 2,000 years ago and to prophecies that were spoken 3,000 years ago. 
or people can debate whether these things are true or not and dig up archaeological things and argue for and against and do all that. But ultimately, it depends. Ultimately, finally, it depends on your Holy Spirit bearing witness to your word, bearing witness to your Son who is currently and presently at your right hand. It depends on the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of Christ being in us, crying out, Abba, Father, from the depths of our being. Lord, just pray you do that this morning as we start to look at Jesus in his resurrection glory, where he is right now, and what he's accomplishing in the earth right now. Lord, that that would just get a hold of us. We want to understand it, but we want it to get a hold of us. Lord, let it be the fuel of our lives when we're in diapers or a mundane job or just fiddling in life, wondering in the end where we're going and what's the meaning of it all. Lord, this, this reality that Jesus has been risen from the dead that he's in heaven, that he's ruling the nations with a rod of iron, and he's ruling them for the purposes of redemption. Lord, just pray that that would be in our hearts and minds this morning, and we will find joy in it. Just like in the psalm, heart full of joy and gladness and hope. Lord, these are the things that that are speaking to us every day and need to be our foundation for faith, for hope, for joy, for obedience for just toughing it out in a tough world, believing in Jesus. I just ask you to do that this morning. I can't do it. No one else can but you. And so we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now Acts chapter 1 is a, a chapter 2. Boy, I'm going to get the numbers right. 2, 16, 1, 2. I'll get them straight. Acts chapter 2 is a big chapter. It's just got a lot of stuff in it. And you can start reading, and by the time you get to the end of the chapter, you've probably pretty much forgotten a lot of the details at the beginning because there's just so much happening, so much being said. So I thought before we can continue, we need to sort of see how 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 110, which make up the core of the rest of what Peter's going to talk about, we need to sort of just maybe see how it fits in, again, be familiar with with the material, at least the components, if you will, of this chapter. Acts chapter 2, the first roughly two-thirds is Peter's sermon, the, the event of Pentecost and Peter's sermon about it. And of course you have the Holy Spirit. He's the one who's poured out. Beginning in verse 1, you just, the Holy Spirit is poured out. And, and what you might not notice if you're, you know, if, unless you read it, and even if you have to sort of pay attention as you go on, this theme of the Holy Spirit goes all the way through talking about being baptized. When these people heard Peter's message and they were cut to the heart, they were truly convicted by God. They're going, what are we going to do? And by the way, that's how you get saved. When you start going, what am I going to (laughs) do? Then then you're a candidate for salvation. When you keep saying, ah, you know, who's God? I don't believe in him. I do, you know, whether you believe in God or not doesn't hurt God, affect God or anything. God is who he is. God is whether you believe him or not. He doesn't need your belief for his existence. But when you start to see your state before him and start to see that you're in desperate need of God, then then you're ready to start pushing aside all the debates 
about science, etc., and start getting real with God. But the Holy Spirit is the great gift. And Peter says to these people who were convicted, they said, what shall we do? He said, repent, be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the chapter starts with the Holy Spirit, and it really culminates with, here's how you get the Holy Spirit. So you want the Holy Spirit of God in your life? Repent, believe in Jesus, show that faith in baptism. And that's what, that's what the passage says. So the Holy Spirit is part of this chapter. Then there's the crowd, the crowd that's sort of ambiguous about things, some mockers, some really wanting to know, those in between. Peter speaks to that crowd, and it's people in that crowd that get convicted by his message and cry out, what should we do? So the crowd is is a big player, and the crowd is going to be all the way to the end of the chapter where it says, you know, about <clears throat> you know, thousands of people are saved. Well, they're saved out of this crowd. And they become part of the body of Christ. So they're a key sort of player in this chapter. Of course, there's Peter. Peter preaches, then Peter answers the question in dialogue with the crowd saying, what should we do? And he explains it to them, and then Peter kind of fades out toward the end of the chapter and the more general picture of a whole bunch of people being saved. And what do these people do? How are they organized? How are they structured? What's the framework in which they repent, believe, have the Holy Spirit? What's the framework? And what do they do? And that's what we're getting at because that's discipleship. Whatever discipleship is, we read of it at the end of the chapter. And that's why we're sort of here. There's a prophecy of Joel. That's Peter majors on that prophecy. He says this is the era in which we all live. Being in the last days is where we live right now, today, here. You are in the last days sitting here at this moment. God didn't ask the world if they wanted to be in the last days. God didn't ask the world, you know, hey, do you mind if I change gears and get into the last days? Those last days in which I'm going to give my Holy Spirit to all who genuinely repent and believe in my Son. These last days in which I'm raising my Son from the dead. These last days in which I am putting him at my right hand and giving him authority over all flesh. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He didn't have to ask anybody. He implemented it. Joel frames your life as you sit here. The last days, we're in it. Then Peter brings up Jesus. Talks about the last days, the Spirit, and then he says, okay, this is about Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, God the Son. Jesus, whom other characteristics and features of who he is to the world will be presented very soon. Jesus. Jesus is at the center of it all. Jesus makes it all happen. Jesus is, is the reason for it. So as you kids, as you grow up, I mean, it's just natural, just in the psychological development of things. The first 25 years of your life are very interesting. You're changing all the time. The world gets bigger every day. 
you're going from depending on your parents to being free to depend on yourself and then figuring out that's not such a great idea. <laughs> Sounds good until the first bills come in, roll in the, roll in the door, and you've got you to gotta pay them. But you're figuring life out. And as you're figuring life out, remember, you live in the last days. You can believe Christianity or not, but you live in the last days. Nothing you can do about that, except make Jesus the center of your life. Make God and the worldview that the Bible gives us that this is God's universe, God's world, God's wisdom is what you need to live in that world. God's given you a whole book of Proverbs. Many of them don't make sense until you hit and encounter the situation to which the proverb applies. Then you go, ah, that's why Solomon said that. You need the Lord. At first, you think you can find meaning and purpose. You know, as young people, you get out there, go, I can find meaning and purpose in the excitement of the world. And then all of a sudden, you find out the world's just not that exciting. It just didn't. Sorry to let you know that. It'll be exciting at first. Everything's new. Even a job is exciting the first day. After that, eh, not so much. A new house is exciting the first few weeks until you've got to start taking care of it. And you're in the neighborhood, and things become old hat. Getting married seems exciting, and it is, and you get married, and it's exciting for many different reasons, some of them you hadn't anticipated. But then you're married. Then you can have children, and you go, oh, having children, now that'll be exciting. That'll be different, because my life's become mundane. And well, it happens, and yeah, it's exciting, and in many ways that you did not anticipate. And you think, ah, oh, my children will get married. I mean, just life is just going through these phases that you look forward to and you think that every new phase, well, maybe that will fix things. Maybe that will be satisfying. Maybe that will be the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. And you find out, no, it's not. The pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is Jesus Christ. Find him early. So you won't be looking for that pot of gold. Like, I'm living life, haven't already found the pot. I'm not looking for it. Sure, I have this experience and that, and it's wonderful, but Jesus Christ is my treasure, my all in all. The wisdom of God is what I live my life by. And the hope of a new heavens and new earth is the ultimate hope any human being can ever have. I mean, does it get better than eternal life? Is there anything better than that? Does it get bigger than God? Does it get longer than eternity? We were made to be defined in those dimensions and to live and to hope and to transact in those dimensions. So you kids, find them early, trust them early. It will mean everything to you and change for the good your life. Jesus is the center of things in Peter's sermon. As Peter speaks of Jesus, he speaks of his death. Then he speaks of his resurrection from the grave, from the tomb. Then he talks about Psalm 16. Psalm 16 that told us a thousand years before about that resurrection. One of the places, other places too. Even before that did. But Psalm 16 is a big one. 
The Holy Spirit through Peter chose it. Well then, as we start to go through the chapter, we'll begin today anyway, there's 2 Samuel chapter 7, a big ticket chapter in the Bible. It's talked about before, last week. There's chapters in the Bible that are just more important than others. It's all God's word. Even the genealogies of First Chronicles, nine long chapters of them. They're God's word. They're important. But some chapters are just Mount Everest. Second Samuel 7 is one of those. We'll be looking at that today. Peter's going to talk about that. Peter's going to talk about then about the reign of Christ. He's talked about his resurrection, but the resurrection is just a stepping stone to the ultimate reality of who Jesus is and why he is an almighty savior, why he can reach down to any human life in any circumstance, in any situation, in any state or frame of mind, reach down and save anybody from their sin. He can do it because he wears a crown. A crown that he arrived at through pouring out his life blood unto death. The crown he earned. He has that crown. He reigns. And Peter says it's the reason that Jesus is at the right hand of God. That's why the Holy Spirit is poured out. Come back full circle. This Holy Spirit isn't just, you know, having the gifts of the Spirit at your fingertips or talking about the Spirit. The Spirit is poured out and given to us to unite us to Christ who is at the right hand of God. And that could not happen unless he was there. And so when Jesus goes to the right hand, when Jesus begins his reign, the first thing he does is he pours out the Holy Spirit in people's lives. So if you want the Holy Spirit, go to Jesus. Mohammed doesn't have the Holy Spirit to give you. Buddha actually never even started a religion. It's actually a philosophy, but he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. He can't give it to you. Hindus, you've got to figure out, well, you know, how many gods you're dealing with, millions according to them. They don't have the Holy Spirit to give you. The Republican Party doesn't have the Holy Spirit to give you. The Democratic Party doesn't have the Holy Spirit to give you. They cannot save you. None of that can save you. Jesus can save because he's the only one who can give you the Holy Spirit of God into your mind and heart. And that's what this chapter's about. It's ultimately what it's about. The Holy Spirit is poured out. Why? He, being by the right hand of God exalted, has poured forth what you now see and hear. Jesus is reigning, and he pours out the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then Peter, not finished, says, I got to squeeze one more in, got to squeeze one more passage of Scripture in, because he's so thoroughly excited. He had just spent weeks with Jesus, having Jesus himself open the Old Testament to him. And he's probably busting at the seams going, now I understand the Old Testament. Now it makes sense to me. Didn't make sense before. 
Now everything's coming together. Everything is, is just blending together and giving that one grand message of the gospel of God and Jesus Christ, a dead, risen, and exalted Savior in fulfillment of Psalm 110. So these are the, these are the pieces of Acts chapter 2. This is the first sermon preached after the resurrection of Christ. This is the gospel. You can't just take a portion of this chapter and say, well, that's the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the framework for faith. This is the faith of all believers. It's not the faith of someone who subscribes to certain parts of it or other parts of it or whatever. This, this is what God laid out. First thing he ever told the world, the people of God, the forming body of Christ. This is what matters. And all of this, as we will see, matches what Jesus said. I have all authority in heaven and earth. He reigns. It's part of the gospel. Some of you may not be aware, but you know, some decades ago, there was a big movement trying to say you could have Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. <laughs> That's a false gospel, because this is the gospel. And the reign of Christ and the lordship of Christ is part and parcel of the gospel. You can't cut Jesus in half and just take half of him. Oh, I just want the savior half of Jesus. I don't want the reigning from God's right hand lordship half. Doesn't work that way. Either you have a whole Jesus or you have no Jesus. This is the gospel. And my brothers and sisters, this is the kingdom of God. It's been so much debate over what is the kingdom of God? It's like, here it is, right here in front of us. It's like really simple. Kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Here it is, the righteousness, peace and joy laid out for us. Through a Holy Spirit obtained through Jesus who died and rose and went to God's right hand in fulfillment of all these prophecies and promises in the scripture. This is the kingdom of God. Now we've looked at these pieces so far. And what we'll be looking at starting today are these final pieces of the reign of Christ and the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. So this morning we're going to start with 2 Samuel chapter 7. Acts chapter 2, if you'll turn there. By the way, I didn't have enough time to put some passages of Scripture up into my little PowerPoint. Well, not PowerPoint, but Visio. And uh, so, sorry this morning, I'll be asking you to actually open Bibles and follow with me. But uh, for now, Acts 2, 29 through 31. Brothers, you just finished Psalm 16. Brothers, may I say unto you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So here's Peter 
talking to a crowd. It's an open-air preaching. He just talks about Psalm 16, where David is speaking of the Messiah who says, My flesh shall dwell in hope, will not see corruption. And he says, I'm going to say to you with confidence about David, this old saint or saint from old, ancient saint, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Now, I'm not sure I've you know, watched videos about uh, Jerusalem and they try to tell you where the tomb of David is and I'm not saying they're wrong, I'm just saying I don't remember. But wherever it was, I can almost imagine Peter saying, there's a tomb down the road that all you people remember because you live here. And it's a famous tomb. And David, who wrote this psalm, is dead and buried, and you can go pay 50 cents and visit his tomb today. It's a fact before them. There's no question about the resurrection of Christ, and there's no question about the death and corruption of David. Everybody knew that just down the road, David, David, his bones or what was left were in a tomb. So fact number one, David, who lived from around 1040 to 970 BC, David died. He was buried and his body decomposed. So why is Peter saying that? What he's going to say is, well, the psalmist, Psalm 16, said it wasn't going to happen to him. David wrote the psalm, but obviously David was not writing about himself because he's dead and is in corruption. So David could not have been writing about his own experience, his own walk with God, or his own hope, or his own purposes. He was writing about somebody else. (coughs) And there's, well, we would say living proof, but in this case, dead proof that David was writing about the Christ, the Messiah, and not himself. So that's the first sort of thing that Peter introduces. And then he says this Psalm 16 was written by David, and David's a prophet. And I keep emphasizing, because I don't know how much it clicks, because... Every month I even get even more excited about the Psalms. I keep reminding myself that as you look at the history of redemption and how God has revealed himself and and how God has created scripture and added to scripture, you can actually go through the Old Testament, by the way, and trace out that story. You don't have to go to archaeologists. You don't have to go to Old Testament scholars. I mean, they might help you point out the scriptures, but there's actually a whole history from beginning to end about how the Old Testament is compiled. And at every step of the way, it's in the hands of prophets. That's what's amazing. You can trust that Old Testament because from stem to stern, it's prophetic. Whether being composed by Moses or being edited by Samuel, or edited by Isaiah. The Old Testament from stem to stern was always in the hands of prophets. 
It was the men of Hezekiah, and remember in Hezekiah's time, Isaiah was there. And the men of Hezekiah would be Isaiah. There was prophetic oversight of gathering together the Proverbs of Solomon. And you can read it right in Proverbs itself. These are the Proverbs which the men of Hezekiah copied out. That's what I mean. You can, there's all these little statements in that Old Testament that this book was always in the hands of somebody totally in touch and totally being led by God himself. But more than that, the Law of Moses, written down around 1450 B.C., or just say around 1500, Moses having access to all the tradition of Israel. Moses also having access to a lot of historical documents. Moses being a person who had been groomed in the king's court to be able to interact with the world around him. I mean, Egypt was at the top of the heap. It was the America of the day. And you had people coming in and out and Moses had to be able to deal with them and interact with them. Moses was a man who probably knew Egyptian hieroglyphics and cuneiform from Samaria or Sumer. Sumerian, not Sumerian, Sumerian cuneiform. And he would also be familiar with a a script called Northwest Semitic, which became Old Hebrew. He would have to be familiar with all those, because in that day, if you were in Egypt and you did business with Sumer, you had to go through the Levant. You had to go through Canaan. You had to go through where there was Northwest Semitic, and you had to be able to interact with all the fortresses that are along. You had to be able to deal with all the governmental people that were involved. And so this trade route between Egypt and Sumer, Moses, he was up there. He was a very well-educated man. He had to be. And then God said, okay, you got all this education by 40 years old, now I'm going to take you out of the wilderness and I'm going to give you a real education. An education in who you are and who you need to be. I don't need hot shots Leading the people of God, I need someone who trusts me. I need a man of humility. I need someone that's described in the Bible as the meekest man in all the earth. So Moses in 1450 B.C. writes down, and you can see the stages as as you read it in the Old Testament. Write this down and put it in the ark. And the scriptures are recorded. And all the time before Moses, the history before Moses, Moses understood and knew, had access to. That takes you through the end of Genesis. From Exodus on, Moses was an eyewitness. And he wrote it down. And in there, there are statements. Deuteronomy 18. There's someone who's going to come after me. He's going to be a prophet. And whoever doesn't listen to him will perish. 
Moses kept saying, there's someone coming down the road who is beyond me, bigger than me, more significant than me. Then you have the historians write, and probably Samuel was one of those historians. Others would be historians. You can read in the Old Testament where uh, David and other kings had scribes copying everything down. You can read in Kings and Chronicles, hey, if you want to know more about this, go to the book of Jashar or go to the book of the Kings. Kings and Chronicles are written from real, solid historical research. And the Holy Spirit selected from that material what was important about a future coming person. Those histories are not full histories, and the histories themselves acknowledge it. If you need to know more, you've got to go somewhere else. These things are being written down because they are important to the coming of the one that Moses talked about. So you had Moses wrote, and then you had the historians wrote, but at some point when it came to the life of David, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, then King David, who's right after Ruth. David writes psalms. He writes at least half of the psalms that we have. And Steve, why is that important? Why are you saying this? Why are you talking about this? Well, because... Here's what I think I missed for a long time, and I think a lot of people, even you know, scholarly people, miss the significance that the first round of real prophecy, the first round, not of just a statement here or a statement there, but the first round of really painting the picture of the kingdom of God and the king of that kingdom, what he would be and who he would be, was written by this person on the screen, David. He was a prophet. He wasn't just a great singer. He wasn't just a king. He was a prophet. And he wrote over half the Psalms. And in those Psalms, you have the expansion of what is the kingdom of God? What is the reign of God? What does the future hold all the way into a new heavens and a new earth? You have that all laid out and all framed out before the prophets, the writing prophets, ever come and put pen to paper. Isaiah wrote 700 B.C., 300 years after David. I mean, America hasn't even been a country for 300 years. And that's important to see that the prophets are reaching back and taking the language and the outline of David and developing them more fully and giving them more of a future, more of a reality, adding more to what that future will be. But their foundation is David. And their foundation is going to be something more, as we'll see, the Davidic covenant. So as you read the Bible, understand these things. Understand how it's put together by God himself. God laid these things out. God revealed these things in the way he wants them to be understood. That's why systematic theology is nice, 
But systematic theology systematizes the Bible. That's an artificial structuring of the Bible. Does it have its value? Sure it does. But God did not lay the Bible out as a systematic theology. You see, we keep thinking it is because we keep taking the parts of the Bible, putting it together in our systematic theology, and saying, now we understand. And God's like, if that's the way I wanted it, that's the way I would have delivered it to you. But that's not the ultimate framing of the Word of God. The Word of God is a living, organic presentation. It starts as an acorn in Genesis 3.15 and ends in the tree of life, in the garden of heaven, in eternal glory. And you watch it grow from that acorn into that tree. It's an organic, living revelation. And you have to appreciate where you are in that revelation when you're reading it. So David was a prophet, and David wrote two of the Psalms that Peter is basing his sermon around. See, Peter had a four-point sermon. He didn't have a three, four. Point one, Joel. Point two, Psalm 16. Point three, Psalm 110, and then, or point four is Psalm 110, and point three is going to be 2 Samuel 7. So we're just taking, taking his points. Here's two of them. Psalms written by David, we'll get to the second Samuel, it's all about David. So David is actually the key figure in Peter's message. So we're spending some time on him. Peter goes on, not only is he a prophet, but when he wrote this Psalm 16, see we know when Psalm 16 was written kind of generally, it was written after second Samuel 7. And we know because Peter tells us right here. This prophet David, whose bones are just down the road, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Psalm 16 was not just written out of the air. It was written as David was thinking of the covenant that God made with him. Psalm 16 is part of the elaboration of the Davidic covenant. You have to see it as that because Peter says you have to read it as that. That's why again, systematic theology where we pick scriptures out of their context and sort of string them together, it's helpful. Especially when you're a young Christian and you go, well, what's the Bible all about? Well, it's about the Word of God. You can trust it. It's about who God is and all His characters, being, His attributes. Yeah, those are great. Those are important. Those are glorious. You'll get filled studying those. One of my favorite books of all time is Arthur Pink's Attributes of God, a systematic study of the being and person and attributes of, of who our great God is. So it's nothing wrong with it. But remember, we're taking stuff out of its context and stringing it together. Here we're going to read Psalm 16 in its biblical context, the Davidic covenant. And the key point of this Davidic covenant, as we will see when we read it, is that God, and all of the things that God says, the big takeaway, 
is that God said to David, one of your descendants is going to sit on your throne and in its context in 2 Samuel forever. Now David, after God was done, Nathan said, okay, I'm done telling you what God said. David went and uttered a big long prayer. His heart was filled. And his heart being filled on many occasions after, I'm going to bet, one of those occasions he wrote Psalm 16 by the Holy Spirit. So we have David. He's a prophet. Bones are still around. He wrote many of the Psalms, two of them, right here in this message, Psalm 16, Psalm 110. And he wrote it with reference to and while thinking about and while being filled with 2 Samuel chapter 7. David wrote with a focus on the covenant God had made with him. As we shall see, this covenant frames his entire future and significance. The point of King David isn't just that he was a, you know, a, a saint in history, the point of David is that he is the precursor to the Messiah. And this covenant that God made with him frames everything. Now, it's kind of worldly, but if you had a billion dollars in your bank account, that would probably change a lot of things in your life, wouldn't it? It would kind of frame everything about you, wouldn't it? You may not think of it all day long, but it's like, do I have to worry about paying bills? No. Do I have to worry about where I want to go on vacation? Can I afford it? No. There's a need in the kingdom of God. Can I meet it? <laughs> Bigger than ever. I mean, a lot of that would end up being bad, which is why it doesn't put a billion dollars in your bank account. But if you had it, it would frame everything. It would frame your future. Would I have to worry about my kids going to college? Nope. What about, you know, where am I going to get buried? I got to buy, no, don't have to buy grave plots. Do I have enough inheritance to give my grandkids? Yep. Your whole entire life would be framed by that, wouldn't it? The covenant that God made with David changed everything in his life. And it changed everything in his psalms. It was always there, always in the background, always informing him, always filling him, always encouraging him, always being his hope and his faith. And more than that, this covenant frames the rest of the history of redemption. There are five great covenants, redemptive covenants in the Bible. The first one is the Noahic covenant. The first covenant that's actually articulated as a covenant. Now people want to sort of slip some other what they call covenants in, but none of them are articulated. It's pretty sure when we're talking about biblical covenants that kind of frame everything, it better be articulated we better not sort of make them up. 
doesn't help anything. The Noahic Covenant is a big covenant because it preserves the stage of human history upon which the history of redemption will transpire. God sovereignly institutes this covenant, this Noahic Covenant. He institutes it with all flesh, everything that breathed. God's in covenant with your cats and dogs. He won't destroy the earth again because of the wickedness of humanity. If it wasn't for that covenant, I'm thinking about every 500 years and maybe these days about every 50 years, God would be flooding the earth and starting over. God says, no, I've already made my point about sin and judgment and death. Now I'm going to fulfill my redemption. And I'm going to preserve the earth as a basis for it. The next covenant, which some of you will be reading about this week if you're doing the reading list, is the Abrahamic covenant. Starts with a promise, gets developed, and is finalized with the symbolic sacrifice of Isaac. It's a covenant. It's a great redemptive covenant. It's a covenant that's fulfilled in Christ, and we are part of it. If you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, well, who is, you know, what's my genealogy? Well, you need to look at your spiritual genealogy because you are a child of Abraham. You are part of the Israel of God. And that's all over the scriptures. I, it always blows my mind when people says, say it's not there. I'm like, sorry, it's everywhere. The Abrahamic covenant. In Abraham will all the nations of the earth be blessed. Blessed in getting the Holy Spirit, by the way, which is what chapter 2 is about in Acts. Then there's a Mosaic covenant, a temporary provision, according to Galatians chapter 3, full of type and shadow, all of it pointing to the realities to come in Christ. And then you get the Davidic covenant. It's the fourth great redemptive covenant. Abrahamic covenant, well, the Noahic covenant's given around 2500 B.C., give or take. Abrahamic covenant's around 2000 B.C., Mosaic covenant's around 1500 B.C., and the Davidic covenant's about 1000 B.C., kind of 500 years apart. Now, there might be 100, give or take, but... If you want to think of it, think of it that way. It's easy. Then that helps you to understand history. Four covenants, 500 years apart. The Davidic covenant is the last covenant in the Old Testament. After that, the prophets grab all the covenants, grab all the Psalms, and with the language and concepts of those covenants and the language of the Psalms, they point to a future. That is how you interpret the Bible. And so this covenant with David, the last great redemptive covenant, 1,000 B.C., 1,000 years before it would be fulfilled in Jesus, it frames the rest of the history of redemption. It's huge. And we'll just leave with one passage. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 33. In chapter 31, the new covenant has been presented to us. But in Jeremiah 33, 
I'll be reading from the American Standard Version. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will perform that good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and concerning the house of Judah. 3314, 3315. In those days and at that time, I will cause a branch of righteousness to grow up unto David. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. That's all over the Psalms, by the way. Here's Jeremiah filled with those things in the Spirit of God. See, God loves his own word, and he often goes back and grabs stuff he said before and just puts it together a little bit differently. Verse 16, 33, 16. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safety, safely. And this is the name whereby he shall be called, the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says Yahweh, David shall never want a man to sit upon the throne of the house of Israel. Neither shall the priests, the Levites, want a man before me to offer burnt offerings and meal offerings and to do sacrifice continually. Now here's an example of a prophet using Old Testament description and language to talk about New Testament realities in Christ. There's not gonna be Levites. You know, we don't have Levites around. We don't need Levites to come. We already have a great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we don't need Levites anymore. But the Old Testament, that hadn't occurred yet. And so the prophets are taking language of old covenants and language of, of things that are described in you know, uh, an ancient world and weaving a future together and you have to figure out, okay, how much of the old language is actually, you know, there's going to be Levites or is he really talking about something greater in Christ? Is this going to be David reigning over a house of Israel and Judah or is this going to be David reigning over the whole seed of Abraham made up of all believers of all nations in Christ? Don't get stuck in the old covenant language. Realize the new covenant reality and fulfillment. Verse 19, And the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant of the day and my covenant of the night, that there not be day and night in their season. What covenant is that? What was part of the Noahic covenant? Day nor night will cease, or seasons. And God says, if you can break that Noahic covenant, if you can reach up into the heavens and transcend physical reality, change the earth spinning or how it goes around the sun, if you can reach up and do that, then you can break my covenant. But if you can't break day and night, well, he goes on to say, then may also my covenant be broken with David my servant, that he shall not have a son to reign upon his throne, and with the Levites and priests my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the seed of David my servant and the Levites that minister to him. 
So we end with that. But this Davidic covenant is big to God, don't you think? He's got these covenants working now. Noahic covenant, Davidic covenant. Other things will be said about the Abrahamic covenant through the scriptures. These are important things to know and appreciate and love. And it's fuel for when you're changing the diapers with weary eyes. It's fuel when you're looking at the clock on one more half hour, am I going to make it at work? It's fuel for those times. It's fuel when you fight with your husband and your wife and you go, are we ever going to get through this? It's fuel for that. Yeah, I'm going to get through it because I belong to Jesus Christ and I'm part of the fulfillment of a covenant that cannot ever be broken. So we just pray and ask the Lord to put these things as fuel in our souls. Heavenly Father, we come to you. You have written these things in your word and so often we bypass them or so often they just don't stick in our mind because they are a little bit confusing or a little bit distant. Lord, please pray you'd get us to realize the realities of these things. That Peter just isn't grabbing things out of a hat in Acts chapter 2. These are things that are so important to our, to our faith and to our hope and to our understanding and to our daily decisions, our daily lives, our daily conflicts, our daily troubles, the daily things we have to accomplish. Lord David sang songs about the covenant you made with him. Let us sing those songs also as they are fulfilled in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.